0: Hey out there in drafting the past world, believe it or not, there are just a few episodes left in this season of drafting the past before I take a quick break to bring you a great new season in 2023. In the meantime, I'm putting together some bonus episodes and I would like to feature you. If you'd like to be included in a bonus episode of drafting the past, go to draftingthepast.com, click send voicemail and leave me a message telling me who you are and some of the best writing advice you've ever received. Okay, on to this week's episode.
1: If writing is what you want to do, and I mean, you can write for yourself. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want people to read you, you write, you submit, you pitch, you get it out there, and you keep doing it.
0: This is Drafting the Past, a podcast devoted to the craft of writing history. And I'm your host, Kate Carpenter. This week, I spoke with environmental historian, Dr. Adam Sowards.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Kate.
0: Adam is a historian and writer whose work focuses on the histories of the environment, public lands, the American West, and much more. He has published four books and an edited volume. And his most recent book, Making America's Public Lands, The Contested History of Conservation on Federal Lands, was published earlier this year. Adam has also regularly written for public audiences, everything from pieces in the Los Angeles Times and Slate to personal essays in literary journals. From 2018 to 2020, he wrote a column for High Country News called Reckoning with History. We spoke about the new directions in Adam's career, how he thinks about public writing as an extension of teaching, and much more. Here's my conversation with Adam Sowartz.
1: I guess I can look way back into secondary school. And I guess even before that, I worked on school papers when I was a kid growing up. I did not do that when I went to college, though, uh, deciding that I was a little too shy and didn't want to talk to people I didn't know. Um, so I thought I'd study history and the people I needed to talk to would be essentially dead. <laughs> and that was sort of, um, one, of the, one of the reasons the path I went down. I started doing history though fairly seriously early on. I was fortunate enough to have a National Endowment for the Humanities grant between my junior and senior year of college. And that led to a publication. So that was really fortunate. And I was able to get some publications out of my master's thesis. And then I guess I was off and running doing the typical academic sort of things and you know, getting scholarly articles published and then eventually books published. At some point in my uh, professor's career, I decided it'd be interesting to write for other sorts of audiences. I don't remember exactly how that happened or exactly when it happened. Although I do think it was probably after I received tenure where there's a little bit of freedom that comes to us. And as most, as is the case in most things, a little bit of success leads to a little more success and more opportunities. So. Once I started doing that, um, I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it, I think, because the audience was different and wider, and I I think at heart, I'm a teacher first, and all of a sudden, my classroom grew. It wasn't the 20 or 40 people in the classroom. It was potentially much larger than that, and not that many years ago, um, I had a sabbatical, and I felt liberated to try new things like writing in the first person. And so I moved from sort of writing traditional history to writing history for a broader audience. And then next thing I knew I was doing writing in the first person and writing personal essays. And now I'm doing all of those things maybe at once. Uh, So that's a little bit how, what the trajectory of my career as a writer has
0: been. Now, are you still working as a professor?
1: I am not. I officially retired, although I'm awfully young, um, so retirement seems like the wrong word. But new (laughs) family priorities took me away from my old job where I was for almost two decades at the University of Idaho. I'm officially an emeritus faculty member now, and I'm open to opportunities and seeing what comes next in,
0: in life. Let's get into the sort of practical side of your writing. So when and where do you like to do your writing?
1: All the time <laughs> um, is, 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 well, that's not true. It depends on what I'm doing. If, if I'm working on a more academic, more historical based project, I'm usually working at home in my home office. And I have found as I've aged that I don't work in the evening very well. And in fact, by late afternoon, I'm not doing so great. So my best writing usually is in the morning although not, that's not always the case, but that's, that's usually when it happens. When I'm out and about and searching for inspiration from the landscape or an encounter in a town, um, I can write right then and there, having a notebook with me, I'm writing longhand. Sometimes I will write in the morning, almost the very first thing I'll do, get up, get a, a cup of coffee and, and write in a notebook. Sometimes, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that goes nowhere. But occasionally, there'll be a line or a paragraph that is worth returning to and building out into something larger.
0: Besides a pen and paper, are there other tools you you use as as part of your writing process?
1: When I'm in an archive, I usually take photographs of the documents that I'm looking at, and I keep track of them through an Excel spreadsheet, uh, usually. Usually pretty well. Um, and and there I have all the uh, finding aid information so I can find those documents again, but also will jot a few notes as I'm going through them at that point. I use Zotero some, although not to its full ex- extent. Um, I think that it has a lot more power than I've ever used. And in recent years, I've mostly used Scrivener to compose, although it is just for me, it's just a composition tool. um once I get a kind of a draft firmed up i'll I'll go into Microsoft Word and do that sort of thing.
0: I'm curious a little bit about your process. I am guessing that it's different depending on the type of thing you're writing, but you know sort of where in the research process do you start writing? How do you approach a piece
1: you're You're right that it differs depending on what i'm what I'm working on. Usually, not always, but usually I know what I'm working on. I have a project now that it keeps morphing and changing, and so I don't know how to describe that process very well. When I'm in an archive doing that sort of research, sort of basic outlines of the story start to appear. You start to see names repeated, so you start to figure that out. I may jot some things down, some outlines, some ideas that occur to me at that point, but I don't really start working while I'm still in the archive. Um, I'll wait till I get home. Deadlines really help uh, encourage me to start working. And occasionally I can self-impose those, but having another one is is really helpful too from a publisher or something. What will often happen for me is I start going through the materials that I acquired in an archive and I start taking notes and the notes really quickly uh turn into sort of narrative notes. I'm describing what is in the document and and soon I'm actually I've I've unconsciously begun writing what what the history is. Then it's constant writing and revision. When I open up a document the beginning of the day when I'm I'm um, full in the writing process, I'll usually start rereading what I had done the day before, fix some things up, make notes myself where I need to come back to before adding at the bottom of that document. Uh, I, I usually do not start at the beginning of the project. I'll often start someplace I think is easy. Like there's a really rich scene that I know I want to to write or a really rich source that I want to sort of dive into. Um, and so that gives me a little bit of momentum and I find that momentum is really helpful and you can build out around it. And I find starting at the beginning very difficult because you often don't know where your story is actually going to begin, or there can be many, there can be multiple beginnings, same with the endings for that matter. I often start in the middle, almost stream of consciousness, trying to figure something out with, with some of the material
0: that I have. It sounds like you do some revision as you go. Do you have sort of a revision process once you get to the end of a first draft?
1: There's a lot of revision while I'm working, um, and that evolves day by day, which usually means the things that I wrote first get to be smoother than the things that I wrote last. One of the most useful revision tools that I have used is, I call it a reverse outline. I don't know what other people call it, but once I have something written, I'll then outline it, which I know that seems backwards. Lots of people outline first and then write. But for me, you know, once you get 20 pages or 200 pages, it's really hard to see. And I can break down a chapter or a book into a page or a few pages, and I can see it all. And all of a sudden, the holes appear in sort of a glaring way, where I might have had a smooth transition between one paragraph and the next when you look at it. In an outline form, you see that, well, those sentences connected, but the topics actually don't. So that's been a really helpful thing for me to do from sort of the structural perspective. Um, I often read aloud, not a whole book, uh, at least not in one sitting. Um, that's one way to find prose that stumbles, or you hear things when you're reading aloud that you don't see when you're looking at it on a screen. Um, so those are some of the things that I do. For the revision process besides sharing with others i have many good friends who indulge me my wife indulges me my best friends indulge me i have multiple writing groups that i have been associated with in one way or another and i go to different ones for different reasons and get different feedback from them so that's always very useful to have their their eyes and their critical thinking about what I've written and I can choose to ignore them that's probably not usually a good idea but when when four of them are saying the same thing or pointing at the same spot you know that's a place that needs more attention
0: how does your process look different when you're working say on a personal essay versus straight history
1: I don't have as many files of artifacts around me <laughs> um for one so in that respect it it's really thinking a lot about the language and the expressiveness of the language. And all of that has to be factual. I can't make things up in personal essays. just like I can't make things up when I'm writing history. But there's a different sensibility that I bring to the laptop or to the notebook when I sit down to do that. I think in I can spend probably more time lingering over the flow of a sentence, the right words than I do. Certainly in the revision process, I do that more than I do when I'm writing straight history. It's a little freer writing process and revision process and I mean part of this is going to seem silly, but part of it is I'm I'm not surrounded by books, I'm not surrounded by archival files, so it's it's me and the document and my memory or my notes from when I walked in a certain place, or thinking back to the senses that were engaged when I was at the seashore or wherever it is I, I might have been writing.
0: Were there things about writing that you had to learn or maybe unlearn when you sort of uh, went from academic writing to writing newspaper columns or personal essays?
1: There's, there's a little bit different language when working with journalists no history professor I ever had told me what a nut graph was, for example. So I had to learn some things like that. Writing for, say, a newspaper or magazine or an online source, there's a great need to connect to the present and current events that is different than I experienced writing straight history. And for me, often like, well, this is just inherently fascinating. Um, And so everyone should be inherently fascinated by this. And so trying to get a news hook has been a trick for me to learn how to do. And I'm still learning how to do that um, for sure. The permission to use first person was something that I supposed had to be learned. I don't think anyone ever told me that I couldn't do that before, but it's just something you learn. You don't do that when you're writing academic work very often. And being freed up to try that was a really interesting experience. And stuff came out I, for me when I was uh, felt free to do that. And that was sort of a, a liberating experience, I think.
0: How do you think about, or do you think about the relationship between your academic writing and your more public-facing writing?
1: Oh, uh, Answer that this way, when I'm working on a public-facing piece, almost invariably in the process of getting it down the first time or or revising it, I panic. And the panic is all my historian friends are going to read this and say, oh my gosh, Adam, you, you know it's more complicated than this you're making these generalizations and you you shouldn't do that. There's so much more to it that you're not putting in. And it's, it can be kind of debilitating. So I have a panic attack for a day, worried about what all my academic peers are going to think of me. And then I remember, and I don't know why I can't remember it from one piece to the next, but I never do. Then I remember, oh, you're not writing to your academic peers. And so then I'm like, the general public that I'm hoping to reach doesn't know this, hasn't read 18 books on this topic, and doesn't care about the nuances between those interpretations. And so I can have that information in my head and I could shape the analysis or the explanation that I'm offered and have it be informed by that, but I don't have to get into all of those nitty gritty details. And so there are like two voices in my head: the academic voices telling me you've got to you know be super critical and super nuanced and theoretically informed and historiographically grounded, and then the you need to be as clear as possible because your readers don't know all of that stuff and they don't care about all of that stuff and so i I try to be informed by my academic training and by the insights I get from my peers, but not sort of hamstrung by that.
0: This is, this is a big thing I struggle with. So it's really actually (laughs) helpful to hear you talk about this. Have you ever gotten pushback from the academic community about your other writing?
1: I can't think of any, I mean, if someone was really offended, I'm not sure they would come and tell me and maybe I'm forgetting a, a case, but I don't think that's, I don't think I've experienced that. It's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it the the voice in my head is real. And it's I can eat I, I won't tell you, but there's a there is a person in my field who sits in my brain and talks to me. It's not good.
0: <laughs> Do you get reader feedback when you work more publicly? I know like this week, for example, I think you just had a, a an op-ed come out in the Los Angeles Times. Which has a massive readership. Do you hear from people?
1: Sometimes uh, through social media, you know, you get likes or ret- retweets or whatever. Um, occasionally, I will get emails um, from people that found something in what I wrote to be. Usually, there's a personal connection, people who have reached out to me that way. And that's really great. That's gratifying uh, to have that happen. I suppose there's some criticism that that comes through social media. And uh, I'm pretty good at being able to move beyond that fairly fast. And it's, there's not, I mean, I don't have as wide a reach as some authors. And so I don't get the type of pushback that others do. I'm also a white man. And so I'm not going to get some pushback that uh, other scholars writing in the public sphere are going to get.
0: To examine how Adam approaches writing personal essays, I asked him to talk to me about the introduction of an essay published in Wild Roof Journal this summer. Here's Adam reading from the beginning of his essay, Submerged Stories, Reaching History.
1: A few times a year, when the crowded shelves of my university library and the cramped apartments in this college town threaten to bury me, I go to the river. It's a 20-mile journey, although a red-tailed hawk could do it in a dozen. To get there, I drive up, out of town, cross the state highway, and move through the rolling hills held in place by a century and a half of wheat, and before that by bunch grasses sinking their roots into loess, so deep as to be practically bottomless. Soon the road banks and opens up next to Union Flat Creek, along which the area's first homesteaders planted their stakes. Old farmhouses and rusting equipment sit beside new combines and tractors off short spur roads and long gravel driveways that branch off the route I'm driving like trickling tributaries to the main stem. On back roads around here, I often see signs nailed to barns, save our dams, a talisman meant to ward off environmentalists who wish to breach dams so that salmon abundance might be restored to regional streams. When I reach the stop sign, I turn and descend Wawawe Canyon, where over the course of a half dozen miles, I wind my way down 1,600 feet. The canyon is narrow and the hills so steep I cannot always see their tops from the pavement. The angles are severe enough that every time I see the cattle and game trails that skirt the curves like topo lines on a map, I marvel at the feats of faunal engineering certain that there must be scores of skeletons littering the gully below, the result of one misstep or a fatal gust of wind. The road traces Wawaiwai Creek until it pools at the bottom of the hill into a small pond in a county park which leaks out beneath a railroad bridge into the Snake River. During the 30-minute drive, fast food restaurants and car dealerships yield to farms and then to ranches And then the empty banks of the snake which pulls me like a current not only downstream but also into a past all places contain ghost landscapes when you see them as a historian does which is to say how i do buried beneath today's scenic vista lies all of the yesterdays layered one upon another accreting with passing memories and moments I obsess over this interplay of place and time. It is where I live, where I think. It is how I chart the world. And I wonder how anyone could plot their universe otherwise, even if it does mean being constantly confronted by loss.
0: One of the reasons that I chose this passage, which is the start of a longer essay, is that I was really struck by how much it's, it's clear how much knowledge both of the history of this place and its landscape and of its current state you have but you sort of resist the urge to to point out your knowledge or, or the research that goes into that knowledge and yet as readers we really feel feel the weight of that sort of intimate knowledge of place and history is that something that you have to work on that you have to revise toward or or does that come out in your approach to essay writing
1: I think it is in my approach to this kind of writing. I want to evoke, not lecture here in this 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 mode. But it's also just, I mean, at the end of that excerpt describes it's it's how I see the world. And so I'm trying to share that, but without being didactic. So I guess it's sitting down to write thinking about the purpose thinking about the audience and trying to make meaning there so so that's just my approach <laughs> i think <laughs> to this kind of writing um it's i i came to realize when writing this essay i shared a draft with a writing group i was part of and the writing group included no historians in fact most of the people in the writing group wrote fiction primarily. They asked me, like, do you really see the world like that? And I sort of asked back, don't you? And it was, a, it was a really important moment for me to realize that not everyone is a historian. Not everyone looks at the landscape and can imagine what happened there or understood what happened there decades ago or centuries ago. Part of the essay is about how that can feel like a burden sometimes. And I really wish I didn't have that. It'd be nice to just look and look, well, we a pretty place um, and not know all of that loss. But it also is this special power that I have because I've been trained as a historian. And, and this was a place that I had a landscape I had lived in for almost two decades. And like I, I, I knew it in my bones. I knew it through my brain and in trying to express it. Clearly, so that others might feel some of that um, was what I was trying to do.
0: Your writing and, and I think your essays in particular really have this palpable sense of place, which I especially love because you were often describing some of my favorite landscapes in the world. But I, I was curious to know if if you have practical strategies for trying to evoke that sense of place. I think you even mentioned maybe notes earlier.
1: Yeah, I take notes. When I'm sometimes I'll go out like I'm going to be inspired today, and so you go out and you try to just capture everything I can with notes. Sometimes that inspiration just strikes, and you you take notes however you can if you've got a phone or a notebook or what have you. I, I worked with a one of the editors I worked with at High Country News talked to me about creating scenes. She described trying to get three senses in. That has really stuck with me. Not just what it looks like, but what can I smell? What do I feel? What do I hear? So I take notes on those sorts of things. Take tons of pictures. Very, very frequently when I'm writing, really any type of writing that I'm doing, I have one screen with the text and I've got a picture next to it. And so that helps me get colors and that brings up memories for me. So those are some of the things that I'm doing. I'm just really trying to get a sense, trying to remember what these places are, or if I mean, if I'm writing about the past that I have not been part of because I was not born yet, if I have been to the place, I try to some of those landscapes aren't going to have changed much. If I can find old photographs or maps, for example, too, and just any clues that can register some familiarity for me or for my potential readers, I'll try to, to sort of milk them as much as I
0: can. I was struck that the opening of this passage reminded me so much of the opening of Moby Dick, as I, as I mentioned to you, and then kind of the progression reminded me of Bill Cronin's essay, Kennecott Journey. I was curious to know if that was deliberate, if you were trying to sort of evoke other literary references as you write, or if, I, if I'm just reading too much into the opening of your essay?
1: That's very flattering. Um, I was not thinking of Melville or um, Bill Cronin <laughs> when I was doing this. I don't know that I ever deliberately set out to imitate writers, but I read a ton, and I take notes on that reading. I sometimes will copy out passages from Essays I'm reading by hand. I've absorbed all of that, I'm sure, but it's not very conscious when I'm doing it. I don't think. I do. I do think that there will be times when I think, okay, I'm like this piece. I'm going down a long, curvy road, so I have some long sentences with multiple clauses that try to mimic that in some way. But that wasn't me trying to mimic Melville. That was me trying to mimic the landscape that I was traveling through.
0: Are there, I mean, that, that raises an interesting question for me. Are there ways that you deliberately try to work on your craft or is it just through practice?
1: Practice is the big one. The more you write and the more you're willing to experiment, the more times you'll fail, but eventually you'll get something. I also For a number of years now, uh, on occasion, will uh, take part in a writing workshop. So I'll work on my craft by I'm in a class right now, as a matter of fact, and hearing how these other writers, both those who are in the class with me, the workshop with me, or and the ones who are leading it, um, and they give you assignments and you try out new things, and sometimes they don't work, and sometimes they really open up something pretty powerful, but. Nothing, nothing teaches writing better than writing.
0: One thing that I've really liked, I would like to know is that you have, I think, four books out. Is that right?
1: Uh, Four books on an edited volume.
0: Okay. All of your books are are quite different, uh, not only in subject, but in tone. What leads you to a book project?
1: Gosh. Well, different things. Uh, A couple of books that I have written, my most recent Making America's Public Lands and my first United States West Coast and Environmental History are part of the publishers have series and series editors approach me for each of those and when the right topic comes to me and I can imagine my way toward completion, I say yes, <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that's always the best strategy, um, but it has served me well on occasion for sure. The other books that that my My study of William O. Douglas as a conservationist came out of my dissertation. And that came to me because here was this man, extremely important during his lifetime and well known at the time as a conservationist, someone who cared about the natural world, was involved in environmental causes. And I would see him referenced in lots of books at the time and then by scholars later. But, you know, he'd be in the index three times and he'd be part of a sentence each of those times. And I was like, there's got to be more here. So that was, you know, the the general dissertation, like there's a gap here we don't know enough about. So I would, would find that. The other book that I published in, in 2020, uh, An Open Pit Visible from the Moon, was a complete accident. And in fact, I think in my acknowledgments, I say this is I often joke that this is the book that, that I wrote by accident. I had friends who were putting an edited volume together, asked if I would do a chapter and I said, no. And they said, come on. And I said, no. And they said, we really, could you, could you do one? And I was like, uh, okay, here are two ideas. And they said, either one would be fine. And it actually derived out of my work on Douglas. There was a protest he had been part of in 1967 that I didn't write about in the book on Douglas. I was like, I could write a chapter on this; it'd be kind of fun. So, the, there was a proposed mine going to go in. He went to a campground. A bunch of college students came to listen to him, and he said, "We shouldn't do this." And I'm like, that, "That'd be—I could do a chapter on that." And I started doing the research, and it was—it was just so full of interesting characters. And I was like, "Oh gosh, I'll do the chapter, but but there's a book here." I'm. I'm a curious person and I'll find something and I'll poke around a little bit and I'll just, I'll try to gauge how much time and investment the project might be. And I'll, 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 I'll go after it, I guess. And so I just follow my curiosity and for good or ill and see where it takes me.
0: You're quite prolific. I was going to say as a historian, but honestly, just as a writer, (laughs) generally, what keeps you writing so much or how are you able to produce so much, do you think?
1: I've been very fortunate in my career to have opportunities, to have a stable job um, up until last spring (laughs) when I stopped. I've uh, had supportive family during these years, supportive colleagues. So all of those things really happen uh, or help tremendously to have that sort of uh, background support. I think that I'm willing to do good enough work and not perfect work. If I were working, I, 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 I could imagine any of the books that I wrote all being 600 pages long and having gone to four times as many archives and have eight times as many footnotes and six times as many theoretical interventions and that's not who i was or who i am and so i'll write and i'll finish and i'll send it off and i'll move on and so i think being not obsessive probably helps me write more and it's taken a bit but learning learning that you know it doesn't have to be perfect and you can ju- you can just move on is probably a pretty good lesson too But if if writing is what you want to do, and I mean, you can write for yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want people to read you, you write, you submit, you pitch, you get it out there and you keep doing it. And I mean, these things, this is, you know, this is, I think, both good fortune, but also the way the system sort of rigged, once you become a little bit successful, more opportunities can come to you. Once you've pitched before and been successful somewhere, you're going to be more likely for it to be picked up again. That doesn't mean that I don't get turned down all the time, but you develop a rhythm, you develop relationships with editors, and you become a better writer. I mean, it's the great teacher.
0: I want to ask you a little bit about your new email newsletter. And first, if you don't mind, could you just sort of describe what your newsletter is, what what it's about?
1: Sure. I call it taking bearings. And I th- Think about We think about taking bearings when you're out on the land, like taking a, a map and a compass and figure out where you are. And I also think it's important to figure out when you are. So that's kind of the, the approach I have. My plan has been to cycle through different themes for each newsletter. So the first is, I call it the classroom, which is essentially a history lesson. And that's followed by a field trip, which is usually me going someplace, talking about the history that has happened there and my experience on that landscape at the time. Then I cycle into the, what I call the library, which is me reporting on a book that I've read, usually um, from the past, a, a book that's uh, decades old. Um, and then a wild card because I figured there's gonna be other things I wanna write about. So I leave that open up and then I just cycle through and I've, I think I've just finished the, the second cycle through all of that. So it's fairly new and it'll evolve. It's an experiment. It's absolutely an experiment and who knows what it'll be like in a month or three months or however long down the road it is.
0: What are your goals for the newsletter? I'm, I'm especially curious as a writer, what, what do you see as kind of the, the reason to have a newsletter?
1: Yeah, well, I think it emerged out of, I mean, I retired from my professor's job and I still had things that I thought, gosh, I know some stuff and maybe people would want to, to, to know some of it too and maybe that's super presumptuous of me. Part of it was a way for me to reach people like in my family who maybe aren't on Twitter and don't know when I publish something, like this would be a way for me to also share with them that I have a new article out you might be interested in. But I've started to think about it, and I call it in my head, these are voice lessons, and it's like practiced for me. So it comes out once a week, It gives me some accountability. Once a week, I have to produce something that goes to people. That means I've got to get something done and done good enough. None of these pieces are anything that I think would be published in any uh, regular uh, venue, but it gives me practice writing. It gives me a deadline to get things done. It gets me thinking about the past, thinking about writing. So it It's very much a public (laughs) way of writing and and trying to get better at that. One of the things I have hoped it would do is make me a faster writer. I'm not in shape enough yet for that to have have worked, um, but I'm working on it.
0: I imagine it's a lot like running where you have to build up your base miles before you can start working on speed. (laughs) I think so. Are there other historians um, or other writers generally who you look to as inspirations?
1: Yes, Uh, many, many, many. Like I said, I read all the time. I'm not, these days, I'm not reading lots of historians, lots of academic historians. I'm really interested in how journalists write history and what I can learn from that. And so that's been something that I've paid some attention to lately. Michelle Nyhouse's Book Beloved Beasts uh, is a good example of that. I recently read Jonathan Thompson's Sagebrush Empire. Both of those uh, authors have done a lot of writing for High Country News, so I have some affinity for for that. My favorite author is Rebecca Solnit and she describes herself as a, a historian and writer and activist and I love how she writes. I do not at all imitate how she writes, but I love seeing her mind at work on the page. I'm a big fan of Helen MacDonald, uh, who's a, a marvelous writer, uh, historian, essayist. and I, I really like what she does quite a bit. I could go on and on and on. sort of classic essayists. I, I love E. B. White. I love James Baldwin, uh, John McBee is a master. I'll stop there.
0: It's a pretty fantastic list. What's the best writing advice you've ever gotten?
1: Oh, this is a great question. Um, And I have a few different answers. And the first is sort of a mindset uh, advice. And it came from my advisor when I was an undergraduate, a man named uh, Bill Breitenbach. And I think I was probably a junior in his office. And I went to his office hours and I was asking something about writing. And he said, you know, Adam, you're on a journey with no end. It's not like you wake up one day and all of a sudden you're a good writer. And so that was really good advice that this is just, you're always going to be able to get better at it. It's not something that, you know, you take this many classes or you write this many books and all of a sudden you're done. You have nothing to learn anymore. So that was really terrific. And then after I wrote my dissertation, I was trying to revise it into a book. And the dissertation was fine, but it needed something else. And a friend of mine, actually, I barely knew him at the time, Mark Harvey said, why don't you take this apart and see how many different ways you can put it back together? And that was really wonderful advice. And I don't know how deeply considered that was. It seemed like kind of an offhand comment, but it just, it blew up the dissertation. I think the dissertation had like 12 chapters and three parts and this elaborate structure and if you look at the book, I think there are five chapters. I mean, it's a very different, but he sort of gave me permission to say what's between the covers of your dissertation can be entirely rearranged if you want. So that was really, really good. Um, I think writing most days, I'd, I'd like to say every day, but we need breaks and practical living doesn't always make that possible, but touching your writing most days is helpful. and. I think reading is really important. Um, Rebecca Solnit, who I mentioned before, wrote a really nice piece on how to be a writer in Lithub, I believe was where it was. And one of her points was to read and not be just reading in the present. So read old things. So you asked what I read in and, and some of the things some of the writers that I'm reading are long dead. And to To touch those other times and see other concerns across decades or across centuries can either help us see what's universal or help us see that the current thing that we're focused on isn't necessarily always going to be there. So it gives you a sense of perspective. And I think that that's really, really valuable.
0: Are there new projects that you're working on?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. (laughs) I'm not sure if I have a big book that's going on right now. William O. Douglas, who I wrote about and have mentioned in this interview, he wrote a book called An Almanac of Liberty. And for every day of the year, he wrote this mini history lesson about Liberty. So it might be a a quick thing on the bill of rights or the Magna Carta or something like that. And I've been toying with doing something like that with regard to environmental Uh, issues because that's the focus of what I do so I've written some entries like that and I've charted out most of the days of the year but not all of them so that's a possibility and I started a project on my sabbatical in 2019 and 20 that looks at federal lands in a way unlike what I had done um, for the last book I put it away I put the project away for a while um, I've written a personal essay out of it. Um, I'm working on another element now, and it's big and amorphous. And I'm not sure if it's going to fail, which will be okay, or if it's going to grow into something new, which would be okay, or exactly if there's going to be three little pieces of it. So I don't know. I'm really interested, as as I think this is all conveyed in. In place and history in place and how being out on the land moves me uh, to think historically and environmentally about places. Clint Smith's recent book is just an amazing book. And the title is is escaping me at the moment.
0: How the Word is Passed. How
1: the Word is Passed. That's it. And so he goes to all of these sites where slavery existed and uh, is commemorated in some way. And he talks to people who are there and thinks about this. And I have wondered if doing a project like that would be possible in the region that I call home and that, that matters a lot to me. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about and exploring and and seeing if if my life will allow that to happen in these coming months and
0: years. Those all sound like amazing projects, so I can't, can't wait to see what comes from them. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview. It's been so great to learn more about your writing process.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Kate.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Adam Sowards for joining me on this episode of Drafting the Past. And as always, I am grateful to you for listening. You can find links to Adam's work and some of the other things we talked about at draftingthepast.com. While you're there, don't forget to leave me a voicemail for our upcoming bonus episodes. And in the meantime, happy writing.